John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly, and my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 98 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are bravely broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump. From a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him, and unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual, the number one pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Obviously, the coronavirus is still by far the biggest story, not just in the United States, but around the world. Uh, we start with a review of the current statistics. Worldwide, approximately 700,000 people are confirmed to have had or do have the coronavirus. Over 32,000 people have died, at least in part because of the coronavirus. Here in the United States, we are now at 135,000 cases and 2,400 deaths. The 135,000 cases is now by far the most in the entire world. What is still unknown is how much of that is because of a massive increase in testing over the last week or two. Italy, which has had the most deaths, uh, they are now close to 100,000 cases and over 10,000 deaths. So while Italy has fewer confirmed cases than the United States, they still have far, far more uh, deaths, despite the fact that the United States has 5.5 times the population at least uh, of Italy. Uh, Spain has 80,000 cases and 6,600 deaths in the U.K., they are over 20,000 cases now, including uh, Prince Charles and their Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, they have over 1,200 deaths. In Canada, uh, 6,000 confirmed cases, just 63 deaths so far, thankfully. And in Australia, 4,000 cases with a remarkable only 16 deaths, thankfully, so far in Australia. Interestingly, Mexico, which has taken 
and by far the most laissez-faire, at least publicly, attitude towards the coronavirus. They currently are still under 1,000 confirmed cases with 16 reported deaths. Now, here in the United States, uh, yesterday marked the seventh consecutive day of increased numbers with regard to confirmed cases and deaths. And the increase has not been small. It has not been exponential, depending on your definition of exponential. But it has been significant each day. We don't have enough information as the time, at the time of this taping as to whether or not it will be eight straight days. Because part of the problem here, there's a number of problems with regard to figuring out where the stats are. One is that the, the day officially ends uh, here on the West Coast in the United States at 5 p.m., uh, which is the end of the Greenwich Mean Time day, uh, we, we currently have uh, a little bit over six hours left in the Greenwich Mean Time day here. And currently, the statistics in the United States for this day, which is technically March uh, 29th, they're better than they have been. But that could be a lack of reporting. Now, New York has reported as of this taping, and it's another horrible day with another 6,000 cases in New York. But there is at least some hope, depending on uh, how much has already been reported, that this might break our streak, might break our streak of seven consecutive days of increasing number of cases and deaths. Now, I have not been as worried about the increased number of confirmed cases because, one, I told you that was what was going to happen. It's happened to a greater degree than I expected, largely because of one state, New York. Uh, New York and New Jersey now combined for well over half of the entire cases in the United States. And so because there was going to be massive increases in testing, there was, of course, going to be a huge increase in the number of people who have confirmed to get the virus. And this is a large country, not the largest in the world, but one of the largest in the world, and far larger than a lot of the other countries that have been greatly impacted by this. So the number of confirmed cases uh, doesn't uh, you know, set off huge alarm bells. However, the rate of death has been going up almost exactly uh, with the increase in the con- number of confirmed cases. And part of the frustration that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, about trying to interpret where we are and, and being able to see the data, is that the data has a lot of question marks about it. One of those is how much of a lag time is there between the time that someone actually gets this virus and they are likely to die. Uh, That has an extraordinarily wide range, uh, everything from a few days to several weeks. And so I find it interesting that the deaths seem to be tracking the number of cases almost exactly even though it's, it's far quicker, although it's still not quick, there's still a lag time to find out whether or not someone has a confirmed case of coronavirus and whether or not they end up dying. And let's face it, when it comes down to it, it's the death rate that really matters. How many people are going to die from this? And what's interesting from a data perspective, and again, frustrating, is that the, the, I think the most important stat here is the number of people who have actually been hospitalized. And then among those who have been hospitalized, how many people are, have actually uh, been sent to the ICU? Interestingly, New York released that data for the first time I have seen it uh, yesterday. I, I have not been able to find it for today. The reason why yesterday's data out of New York was theoretically, potentially significant is that for the first time, they had a fairly significant drop 
in the number of new cases going to the hospital and the number of new cases going to ICU. Because obviously there is a huge range in what it means to be a confirmed case of coronavirus. It can mean everything from, you know, I'm not feeling all that great to someone actually dying. And so the number of cases doesn't really tell you that much. How many people go to the hospital? How many people within the hospital are in ICU? Now, that's a much more significant number. And interestingly, while not all states are reporting that number, including here in California, as best I can tell, which I find to be interesting because I, I think that we don't have as nearly a big a problem here in California as being perceived because we are so large. We have by far the largest population in the United States, and we have the population of most large countries, many much larger than a lot of the countries that are being impacted here. And yet currently we have a little over 5,000 confirmed cases. So the number of cases is not the key. It's how many people are hospitalized. And that number, the confirmed number of people hospitalized, is not that dramatic, but it also might not be that reliable because, as I just mentioned, not everyone appears to be reporting those numbers. So I would be very interested to know, and I'm sorry I can't tell you as of this taping, whether or not for a second straight day New York had a drop in the number of people uh, going to hospitals and to the ICU. If they do, that's really good news because the theory that the optimistic theory has always been and this was where i was although i've been my faith in this has been wavering over the last couple of days is as i told you in the last couple of podcasts we were headed for a lot of bad data we were pardon the analogy we were about to poop out a, a whole bunch of really bad data from several weeks ago if you if you if you accept the premise that it takes at least two or three weeks from the time that you get this to the time that you become a statistic, we're still dealing with a time period where America was not taking this nearly as seriously as we are now, for better or for worse. Uh, I mean, it, but we're now entering this coming week. We are now entering a time period when okay, we should if social distancing works. Washing your hands works. If shutting down schools works, if shutting down businesses works, we should be seeing not having any uh, public gatherings works. If all that really works, we should be seeing a reduction or at least a stabilization in numbers awfully soon. If we don't see it in the next week, if we don't, and I'd I'd like to see it in the next few days. Uh, based upon my reading of the numbers. But if we don't see it within the next week, then there's a problem. Now, here in the United States, it's going to be particularly difficult to interpret the data because you have so many cases in one place. So many cases in New York, basically New York City and northern New Jersey. And, and, uh, you know, I asked in the last podcast, is this an outlier or is this the future? Now, it's not going to be the future because there's only one New York City in uh, the United States, for better or for worse. But you now do have uh, a a significant number of cases, depending on your definition of significant, number of cases essentially all over the country in, in every single state. And so are they going to grow uh, a, a few a day? Or are they going to start to grow exponentially? Uh, is social distancing going to work? I mean, we're going to find all that out slowly, painfully slowly, uh, but surely. But there should be some, some at least stabilization 
of these numbers in the next few days. And I, and I really wish I, we had a full sense of, of the data for today and whether or not we're going to break here in the United States this seven consecutive days of increasing cases and increasing deaths. Uh, we're still at a, and, and you're, you're not allowed to say this, but you know, even at 2,400 deaths, and that number is going to go higher, it might go much higher from, from a proportional standpoint, uh, but you're still dealing with a remarkably small event in the history uh, of medical illnesses. I realize that this is, this is different, and I think I've kind of come to understand the best way to describe how uh, coronavirus currently without a vaccine is different from the flu. I mean, that's always been the big question. Is this like the flu? How much is it like the flu? We've had other flu bugs where people, lots of people died. Uh, I've mentioned many, many times, as have other people, including the president, the swine flu situation as kind of a standard here. Just to repeat that, 60 million people supposedly got it. 275,000 people went to the hospital. 12,500 people died of it. And while I have been certainly uh, among those who have said, okay, this feels like it's in the ballpark of the flu. Why are we treating this so much differently? I mean, so much differently than the swine flu. But to show my objectivity, I do think that there's a way to describe the difference. And part of why the flu kills a lot of people is because the people they're killing, let's say, are about to die of something. And the flu just happens to be the last thing that nudges them off the cliff. And, and that's really, I think, the best way to describe this. It's not perfect, but it's the best I can come up with. That if you think of our inevitable journey towards death, eventually we get close to that cliff, right? And, uh, you know, people who are in their late 90s, you know, they got one foot over the edge of the cliff. And, uh, and maybe even a little bit younger than that, depending on their, their health. But at, when you get to that stage of life, you're, you're hanging over a cliff. And it's just a matter of whether or not something is going to nudge you over the cliff. And that will be the end of your life. Well, the flu, the normal flu bug, is a nudge off the cliff and unfortunately that's just the nature of life often that's all that it takes that's all that is required to end your life as a nudge once you're on the edge of that cliff well the coronavirus appears to be taking people who have two feet firmly uh, on ground but they're near the cliff uh, they're in their 70s their 80s they have underlying health problems but there's nothing that is inevitably going to end their lives and the coronavirus under bad circumstances is pushing them off the cliff it's a shove rather than a nudge. And, you know, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, who has been a media darling in all this, which is baffling to me considering the disaster that New York is, but he's good on TV and he's a liberal and they love him. He early on referred to this as the flu on steroids. And I think that's probably the best way currently, based upon the data, uh, to describe it. But does that mean that our response to this should have been exponentially I mean, I do mean exponentially uh, more dramatic than the flu. We don't know yet. We just don't have enough information. We're nowhere near the end of this yet. We don't know uh, what kind of damage is going to be done by this. And that therein lies a large part of the quandary. Because those who have been on my side of this argument have not had enough reliable data to use in order to say, hold on here. 
Are we overreacting in some areas? Uh, there's a prominent uh, doctor from Stanford who has uh, been uh, writing and doing interviews. I, I posted it on my Twitter page a couple days ago, a very long interview that he did, where he's saying, you know, this could still end up being more of a d- data fiasco uh, than a medical fiasco. Uh, I realize it's never going to be perceived that way because everyone in power is invested in this being the biggest thing that has ever happened, uh, the most devastating thing that's ever happened, and that if we don't have a catastrophe, it's because we took all of these unprecedented measures. So we're never going to be able to prove the other side of this. I am still not convinced that we did not overreact in some ways. Uh, that's not to say this is not serious. I, I am just one more time. I'm all in favor of educating people, enforcing uh, uh, socially, uh, social distancing, making sure people wash their hands, avoiding uh, spectator events, uh, you know, canceling those, postponing those, what have you. In most cases, I'm even okay with uh, postponing school. It depends on how long that goes for. So there are all sorts of things that I think are per- perfectly reasonable. Uh, but I also am not convinced that we have gone too far in shutting down the world because there are enormous costs, not just financial, but also from a collateral cultural damage and a precedent setting perspective that are really, really important here and that uh, are being lost. I mean, I am still convinced that it's not just the economic damage, the catastrophic economic damage that is being done, uh, but uh, we, are, we are in a situation where there's going to be an enormous increase in depression, there's going to be an enormous increase in suicide, uh, murder, domestic violence, alcoholism, drug use, all sorts of things that are never going to be able to be quantified uh, that could end up being just as bad as the coronavirus. Uh, but we just don't know that, and that's part of what's paralyzing my side of of this thing. I don't even want to say my side because I am not in the realm of people who have been saying, you know, this is no big deal, this is a hoax, uh, we shouldn't do anything about this. There's there's a middle ground here. Let me use an analogy that uh, that may or may not work. You know, I had a uh, a very uh, mediocre academic career, uh, and part of the reason why I had a mediocre academic career is because uh, I, for better or for worse, realized very early on when I went to a, a prep school in Philadelphia and then Georgetown University that in in most cases, for me to get a B or a B plus was pretty easy. I could get a B or B plus in almost any class without trying really hard, but to get an A was very difficult. And if you worked your ass off, you might not even get the A. It might not even be worth all that extra work. So I figured out that, you know what? I could pretty much do the same. I mean, the difference between my parents' reaction when I got a B or a B plus and when I got an A was negligible. Yet I could achieve that with far less uh, work and hassle. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but I think you know where I'm going with this. And that is it's the same thing with regard to the coronavirus reaction. I think we could achieve uh, pretty much almost everything that we're hoping to achieve with regard to shutting down the world simply by educating people about keeping their distance, washing their hands, and avoiding large gatherings. I, I really do believe that that gets you... I don't know what percentage, 90, 95, maybe even higher than that percent of the benefits here. But in order to get that extra few percentage points, we're shutting down the whole world and causing all sorts of collateral damage. 
And that to me is is where it doesn't. It's no longer smart. Uh, you're, you know, in large ways, you're doing it. You know, look, I, I get that a lot of people are, are their motivation here is to try to save lives, and that's that's always good. I get that, uh, but it's in my view, it's short sighted. And there are principles that are being destroyed here in a very, very big way, especially with regard to government power. The government power here it has gone off the rails. Uh, just yesterday, Donald Trump said he was considering a quarantine of New York, New Jersey, and parts of Connecticut. Correct. And, uh, and you know, Justin Amash, the libertarian, no longer Republican member of Congress who voted to impeach Donald Trump, said, okay, based upon what authority? Uh, I don't know what authority Trump thought he had, and he ended up backing off, uh, whether because maybe he didn't want his authority questioned or, or what have you. But this was bizarre on a couple of different levels. The first is this seemed to be his third pivot. In the last episode of the podcast, we talked about his double reverse and his second pivot. But how in the world can you say you want the economy open by April and then shift that to uh, you know, just before Easter, which is a couple weeks, less than a couple weeks into April? How can you say you want the economy open by Easter, but you're also going to quarantine the heart of the economy, which is New York and New Jersey, northern New Jersey? How How is that even remotely possible? possible to to do uh and uh, you know again he decided to back off of that uh for reasons that we'll probably never fully fully know but uh this the idea that the federal government is going to shut down travel between states without any authority is mind-blowing i mean i mean from a constitutional standpoint and this is this is a guy who the constitutional conservatives support it's which is really quite uh well we we know what that is it's just it's just flat out ridiculous because trump is a king trump is is a monarch uh and and that's the kind of thing that a monarch does and uh, and there are all sorts of things that are happening on a daily basis that are really scary with their power. And the government is never going to give up power. It's a monster that feeds on power. And once they get it, and especially these Democratic liberal governors, once I mean they they are they're I mean they're in uh, liberal heaven, uh, not literally, but I mean figuratively with regard to the fact that they can they can now let their inner fascist out in any way, shape, or form they want, and all they do is get applauded, and the other side uh, can't even stand up. They're they're not even allowed to say, "Whoa, wait a minute, what are you doing?" Because then you're you're in somehow in favor of the virus, and wh- and if you're perceived as being in favor of the virus, then you know then you're you're done. You have no argument. Uh, but as far as how Trump is handling this, uh, you know, I am uh, I am somebody who has always believed in the concept that when a crisis hits, you want to support your president, give them the best chance. You want the country to succeed i'm also someone who gives the benefit of the doubt but once that benefit of the doubt is done then uh, it's katie bar the door uh, I, i'm going to uh, attack uh, you as hard as you deserve to be attacked and i am getting very very close uh, to believing that uh, Donald Trump's benefit of the doubt on this is gone. Uh, and and it obviously, as the host of the Individual One podcast, <laughs> I didn't believe he, be- he deserved a lot of benefit of the doubt to begin with. But I, I will say, and this is on me, this is probably the biggest mistake I've made so far, 
and that is that I put a lot of stock in the fact that Donald Trump appeared to be very, very, very confident uh, towards the first uh, parts of this crisis. Correct. And I thought, okay, uh, the, the guy is a moron. The guy is a narcissist. Uh, the, the guy is, is unfit for office uh, and all that. But uh, he can't be dumb enough to be this super confident unless he knows something that we don't know or that is not readily apparent to us. Correct. But that has turned out to be false. That he, I, I now am beginning to believe that this is just his delusional uh, nature. This is him believing that will always work out for him. With me, it's just works, you know, it's magic. That he believes that he is blessed. And, uh, and that has led him into a series of statements that are flat-out wrong, delusional, and have been very counterproductive. For instance, remember about a week or so ago, uh, he told us that he had a really good feeling that there was a miracle cure for this thing. Correct. Remember that? Yeah, well, we don't hear much about that anymore, do we? There were a couple of anecdotal examples that really didn't fit. Uh, in you know, because they were not older people, uh, they were younger people who did not appear to have any major health issues, and of course, there's the placebo effect, and then there's the coincidence. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of different potential explanations for why someone might take this malaria drug combined with this other drug whose name I can't pronounce, uh, and somehow have it help. Uh, but, you know, Trump uh, was was really confident that this was going to be a, a miracle drug. He said it on numerous occasions, and, and he really did not hedge nearly as much as his supporters would like to pretend that he did. And there's no indication so far at all that uh, that miracle cure is is working out, because otherwise, why would you even need to consider quarantining New York and New Jersey. That's also completely inconsistent with your previous statements. So I, I am I'm losing faith, very, not that I had much, uh, very fast in Donald Trump's handling of this, but I will still maintain that we're nowhere near catastrophic numbers by historical standards, at least not here in the United States. However, I do think it's interesting, and this is, I, I believe how we've, we've titled this particular episode of the, of the podcast, it's interesting to consider just how remarkably well-designed, and I do not mean in a conspiratorial way or that you know, this was done by human beings, I'm talking about in a theoretical, big-picture sense, how remarkably well-designed the coronavirus was to destroy the United States. It really was the perfect Trojan, or is, the perfect Trojan horse. And I thought a lot about this, but this was really well articulated to me by a friend who's a broadcaster who texted me, and I'm not going to use his name, I haven't even told him I'm going to do this, but he listens to the podcast, so he'll probably, I think he'll probably appreciate it. But uh, this friend of mine tweet, texted, not tweeted, he texted to me, uh, he says, hear me out on this, and I'm and in capital letters, I'm not in any way saying this is remotely possible. Think for one moment about this. This virus, if it were created purposely to be spread around the world, it is the most brilliant one ever, transmissible enough to make everyone panic, but not fatal enough to get us to react fast enough. 
I'm not convinced anyone is smart enough to have come up with it, but it threads the needle. Slow moving. By the time countries react, it's too late and creates maximum panic. And the goal of such germ warfare isn't mass death. It's to ruin a society and a country. 2020 hindsight always wins. And if I were trying to create a virus to paralyze the U.S., this is the virus I would create. If it were hugely fatal, we'd have reacted much faster, and if it killed young people, the same. But it was on the margins enough for us to kind of be late to the party, and then bam, full-out pandemonium. And I, I really agree with this in concept, and I also want to emphasize, this is not a, a situation where someone is theorizing, and I'm not theorizing, that this was all part of a plan or a plot. I'm talking about this being a perfect storm. There really are perfect storm elements to what happened here. Uh, that's why I use the, the Trojan horse analogy. It, you know, and, and part of this, which this person did not get into is, and I'm, but I'm sure they would agree with, it's also an election year. And having this happen in an election year is part of the perfect storm because Donald Trump did not want this to mess with his reelection. That was a huge part of why he underreacted at the start. Correct. Now, he will claim that that's not the case, but he absolutely underestimated this. And I think part of it was because of the psychology that he doesn't think anything's ever going to mess with what's good for him, because after all, with me, it's just works you know it's magic and so so because it's an election year uh that that i believe diminished our initial response it, it incentivized and incentivized liberals to em embrace this narrative much more quickly than they would have if hillary clinton was president let's be clear the same facts could be on the ground and there would not have been nearly the same kind of reaction on the left uh, to this as there was because Donald Trump was president. By the way, some of that is logical because Trump does not instill any sense of confidence and it does not have the moral authority to deal with a crisis like this, which has always been one of the top two or three concerns I had about a Trump presidency. And boy, has that come to fruition. Mar Donald Trump was does not have the moral authority to deal with a crisis like this. If he told us tomorrow that X, Y, or Z was going to happen with this, only 40 to 45 percent of the public would believe him. The rest, and, and at least 50 percent, would, would would presume it was a lie. That means he does not have the moral authority to govern in a crisis like this, and should not be president. And that's partially why he should have been removed during the impeachment. I even said that. I said, well, you know, we still have another year on his term. If there's a crisis, he cannot lead. And boy, we, we got a crisis. Uh, now, I'm still not a thousand percent convinced this is a crisis that warranted the, the catastrophic response uh, that it has elicited. We still don't know that. Uh, we're not going to know that for at least several weeks, if not longer period of time than that. But that's the reality. I mean, perception becomes reality, and this is perceived as that. And so, you know, at a certain point, you got to deal with reality. And, and I'm a guy who deals in reality. So we, we have this perceived crisis that is killing people in, in significant numbers. It's not made up. It is real. We're just a matter of, of how big of a deal it really is. And Trump cannot handle it. And, uh, and there are other elements of this perfect storm as well because of the really bad data. 
People uh, like me, don't, as I've already mentioned, don't have the weaponry to say, hold on a second, because it originates in China. We don't have any faith in their numbers. And, uh, and because it's China, uh, we don't even know, you know, did they not tell us the truth? Did they not give us a full heads up because they were concerned uh, in, in, in similar ways that Trump was concerned, that they didn't want this to be seen as their fault? Uh, there, there are all sorts of different elements to this, and I do agree that if this was perceived as being an even bigger threat from a, from a death standpoint, that we would have no problem getting the country to all buy in, all right, let's shut down, we got to shut down. But because it's, it's exactly the point, it's, it's exactly the level, you know, we can argue about what the death rate on this is going to be. Some people think it's going to be 1% or 2 3%. Some people will be much less than that. We don't even know the numbers of people that are going to die. But it's it's a number that it's right there in the wheelhouse of there being ambiguity as to whether or not this is worth shutting everything down. So now you have this red state, blue state divide that I've been talking about for several weeks where it becomes much more difficult to get the entire country to buy in. And, you know, and, and I have to acknowledge that this all coming in the midst of this massive catastrophic global warming debate also has an impact because a huge portion of the country, those that are Trump supporters, have inherent skepticism and cynicism towards the science world telling us that we're all going to die. Because let's face it, I, I am certainly in this category. I, I am absolutely one of those people believe that the most catastrophic projections of man-made uh, global warming are a greatly exaggerated for political purposes. Now, these are totally different people that are telling, well, they're not totally different, different people, but the scientists are, are different scientists, but it's perceived as in the same realm. It's the same type of thing where they're telling us we're all going to die, and they've been telling us we're all going to die on climate change, and there's no indication that that's happening anytime soon. Uh, and, it, and in my view, this could still, climate change could still be a, a natural cycle, which has happened throughout the history of the planet. Uh, and who knows how much impact man is really having. But that's, that, I don't want to get too deeply into that argument other than to say that that's another element of the perfect storm. But because this is all happening within that context, it's impacting how people perceive this, and it's impacting our response, and it's creating a further divide between the red conservative states and the blue anti-Trump states. So there are so many elements of this that are perfect for the, the destruction of the United States. And we saw what I believe to be uh, the economic coup de grace uh, to this week when the, the Congress of the United States passed this $2 trillion plus uh, stimulus package that is essentially the United States fully embracing socialism under a Republican capitalist president. Correct. And I've always believed, and this goes to the, the, the old only Richard Nixon could go to China theory, that the only way you're going to have uh, the United States embrace socialism is not through a Bernie Sanders who's a, an avowed socialist. Because a Bernie Sanders, if he had become president the Republican Party would have been incentivized, would have been invested in fighting him tooth and nail. There would have been absolutely no question at all that the entire right-wing media, the entire Republican Party, would have been fighting for the survival of the United States against socialism. But when the Republican Party is neutered 
because they've got a big spending liberal con man who now is desperate to save his reelection chances. Now they will embrace socialism because it's the only way and they can't individually go against him, which was proven this week in the process of this bill passing because of the destruction of a Republican congressman in Kentucky by the name of Thomas Massey. Uh, then, uh, then we have a full on embrace of socialism without one negative vote in the Senate. Not one, not even Rand Paul, the alleged libertarian and not even an actual vote not even an actual vote in the House of Representatives. You cannot be serious. So the United States of America fully embraced socialism. Let's be clear. Now, you, you can argue whether or not this bill needed to be passed. I don't know. I mean, a lot of it's a boondoggle. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of bull crap spread through all out that bill. I'm, I'm sure a lot of it makes no damn sense. But I get that this is an economic emergency. I get you need to put cash into people's hands. I get that. You can have a reasonable argument over whether or not this needed to be passed. You cannot have a reasonable argument over whether or not this is the United States embracing socialism. Because it absolutely, positively, 100% is. Correct. And it could only happen under Trump because the Republican Party has now been neutered. Correct. And the perfect example of that was Thomas Massey, conservative Republican from Kentucky. All he wanted, all he wanted was an actual vote on the bill. That's all he wanted. Now... You could argue, uh, was this a smart move on his part? Because obviously it wasn't going to change the reality. All it was going to do was delay the vote a little bit and force some people to come back to Washington to vote. That was all that was going to happen. But to Massey, there was a principle at stake here. Remember those things? We used to actually care about principles. And the principle here was he wanted this to go by the proper procedure, and he wanted people on the record. Okay, if we're going to do this, if we're going to become a socialist country, if we're going to hand checks uh, of $1,200 to each adult in the entire country make it under $100,000 a year. If, if we're going to do all sorts of other things that are absolutely socialist in nature, if we're going to change our very uh, basis of our economic system, if we're going to do this, shouldn't we at least have a vote? And boy, oh boy, oh boy, you know, there would have been a time when people would have at least respected that view, at least said, okay, you know what? There is an important principle here. It sucks, but we should take a vote on this. But that's not what happened. And boy, is it not what happened. Instead, the Republican president of the United States unleashed hell on Massey. He didn't just say publicly, you know, I respect Congressman Massey's position, but he's wrong on this. We, we need to do this now. We can't delay. And uh, I, I respectfully ask him to change his mind about forcing a vote on this. That would have been I wouldn't have agreed necessarily with it, but that would have at least made some sense. Trump didn't do that. Trump called him a, 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 a fraud, a publicity hound, and threatened to have him kicked out of the Republican Party. And guess what happened? The cult fell in line behind the king. Correct. And Massey was not even able to get a second. You need, you know, you make a motion, then you need a second 
Now, all getting a second in the house, this, I can't imagine this has ever not happened before. Uh, certainly on, on something like, well, anything remotely as big as this, it's usually a fait accompli. I mean, all you need is a voice vote of someone to say, I second. Well, they somehow got away for every single Republican, including those Tea Partiers, those Freedom Caucus guys who got elected claiming they were going to be about fiscal responsibility and reigning in big government, and not one of them seconded this. And so Massey got humiliated, and he didn't get his vote, and the United States of America became a socialist country because, because uh, of this coronavirus and without a vote, without even a damn vote. And this is all part of this perfect storm of how this virus is perfectly suited to destroy America partially because it's happening in an election year and partially because we have a fraud as president who is desperate to try to maintain his re-election chances and he knows the only way he can do that is if he becomes Franklin Delano Roosevelt where he becomes uh, Santa Claus handing out checks of $1,200 to each voter in an election year and it's helping him with regard to his approval ratings later on I'll get into whether or not it's having an impact on what the November election looks like but I found it to be particularly symbolic that Tom Coburn, a, a legitimate conservative Republican uh, who was in the House and the Senate, uh, passed away just after this bill uh, was passed. Uh, because uh, I would like to believe that Coburn would have been one of those who would have stood up and at least said, hold on a second. Uh, are we are we really going to do this? And if only for symbolic purposes, would have voted against it. But we have now completely left the gravitational pull of the rational earth on this. And, and it's not just, I mean, when I say socialism, it's not just about giving people money. I'm telling you, we are so close. We are so close right now to losing private property rights. It is mind-blowing. Uh, we've got Joe Biden out there saying that uh, people should not be uh, forced to pay rent for three months, we're just going to say you're not allowed to collect rent for three months. I, what? What? You cannot be serious. Okay. So hold on a second. So what you're saying then, unless there's going to be some massive government bailout of landlords, what you're saying, and I happen to be one, so this is a, a topic that hits very close to me. Uh, you know, I'm not anywhere near a rich guy, but we have a rental property. I don't know whether or not our renter is going to pay rent this coming month, but uh, if they decide they don't need to, and we're not, we're, we're we're essentially telling renters don't bother paying your rent, whether it's in law or we're just not going to enforce the law. What does that really mean? You're forcing me to allow someone to live on my private property for free, for free, for for an extended period of time. That is a destruction of my private property rights. We're, we're also seeing it where, and this is, seems like an incredibly minor thing, but from a principal standpoint, it's huge. And it's happening a lot where, around where I live in Southern California. Private golf courses are being shut down. Private. Let's, let's be clear what this is. You are allowing people of your choosing, freedom of association, to walk 
on your private property. They just happen to be carrying a, a bag and, a, and some clubs. Big deal. But that's all you're doing. You're be, you are allowing people of your choosing to walk on your private property and the government is stopping that when it's clearly not even a threat to spreading the virus? It's just flat out ridiculous. And, and here in Los Angeles, and I don't know to what extent this has actually been done, but they, they have a plan to, to take over hotels to house homeless people in a in a city that doesn't isn't even being overwhelmed by this anywhere near where New York City is or other or even other big cities are. I mean, they they're claiming that Los Angeles is being overrun, but the numbers don't support that. But these are all situations where government is taking away our most basic right because once private property is gone, we're done. It's over. Stick a fork in us. And, and private property rights are hanging by a thread, by a thread right now, all over a situation where right now a, a, a little over 2,400 people, and it's going to go higher, 2,400 people, almost all of whom are older and have health issues, have died of natural causes. Really? Really, I, I look. I, there's going to be plenty of time after this is over to play, uh, you know, 2020 hindsight, which I hate. But I got to tell you, con- considering how much money was spent on this bill, what about this plan? I mean, this is—it's amazing how often, how inefficient we are in government, and how often now this would actually be the better plan. What if we handled coronavirus like uh, state-run academic institutions handle a sex abuse scandal? where we just pay out people directly to those who are impacted by coronavirus. Let's say you die of coronavirus, your estate gets a million dollars from the federal government. I'm just ballparking it. You know, a million, I'm, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that the vast majority of people who die of coronavirus would be like, oh, okay, that's, that's not bad. My, my, my estate's going to get a million dollars. It doesn't really help me, but you know, they're going to they're gonna think fondly of me for a, quite a long time. Uh, and, and if you get hospitalized uh, by coronavirus, you get, I don't know, 50 grand, 100 grand, whatever it is. And then obviously, where do you draw the line on this? You know, with businesses being impacted by the you know, natural behavior, people being scared, like airlines or whatever, you'd have to do some direct bailouts. But if you didn't shut down the world, if you just said, okay, we're going to uh, go on with life as carefully as we possibly can, we're going to do social distancing, washing our hands, we're going to cancel spectator events for a while. If you do all that, uh, but here's the deal we will. Uh, make remuneration to those directly impacted by coronavirus, you could pay out enormous amounts of money to every person directly impacted by the coronavirus based upon the current stats. And even, by the way, if the stats explode from here, which they very well might, you could pay every person directly enormous amounts of money and still be nowhere near over $2 trillion, which, by the way, is only the first drop in the bucket. I mean, that's not going to be the end of this. You could pay people directly and say, we're sorry, we blew it, we can't shut down our life, 
but we're going to try to make this uh, as as just you know bring some semblance of justice to you and your family uh, for being impacted by coronavirus. Now, no one will ever have the balls to do that, but that would have worked a hell of a lot better than what we're currently doing. All right, now when we come back, uh, I'm going to talk about um, Joe Biden and his the sexual assault claim against him and some fascinating new poll numbers regarding the November election. But first, here's an interview I did with Tom Bauer, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions and salves, and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity. But for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. You know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just you don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at MU Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian. You know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. 
And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. It's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a, a news story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like, backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that are doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a a brand new uh, thing for FDA, they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that that is, again, is, is goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian, to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us, tell us why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks, and certainly not more expensive than others, but, uh, but we're, we are a higher-priced product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness. And, you know, what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, They want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Imbuecbd.com. Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. So Joe Biden has been in a very odd situation over the last week or two because obviously uh, with the nation uh, completely embroiled in the coronavirus crisis, the last thing people are really uh, focused on is the November election. Uh, He has essentially wrapped up the nomination against uh, Bernie Sanders, so he will be the Democratic nominee, uh, barring some really catastrophic situation, like, for instance, coronavirus, which, of course, is impacting his ability to respond to any of this. He's basically held up in a bunker. They even created a TV uh, studio for him because, uh, being at his age, he's very vulnerable to coronavirus. So uh, he He's essentially stopped campaigning uh, publicly, 
And uh, though they have put out some pretty devastating commercials, some of which the Trump campaign is is hilariously trying to claim uh, should not be run by uh, TV stations, even though all they do is use his own words about the coronavirus against him. But in the midst of all this, uh, Biden got hit with a sexual assault claim by a former staffer by the name of Tara Reid. Now, I'm not going to get too deeply in this episode of the podcast into all the details, largely because the media is somewhat hilariously and hypocritically largely ignoring uh, this claim. But this is a former staffer of his who claims back in the early 90s that Biden assaulted her and penetrated her with his fingers, uh, thinking that she was attracted to him and then said all sorts of nasty things about her. Now, there are many obvious problems here. One, that's a hell of a long time to hold on to something, especially many years after Me Too. And after this woman had already come forward with other far more benign allegations against Biden. So how is it that once you come forward and you come forward after Me Too uh, and you don't add uh, the fact that he physically assaulted you? Uh, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, that that's That's really, come on. Really? Come on, really? You cannot be serious! Uh, okay, especially given the timing. So you're going to suddenly do this right in the middle of a presidential election year just after Biden uh, is about to wrap up the nomination and there's indications that this person you know, has ties to, and I don't know the details on this, but it has been perceived that she's tied to the Russians and could the Russians be putting her up to this or Bernie Sanders' campaign? I mean, there's all sorts of obvious motivations here. What I find fascinating about this is the hypocrisy of the media and the hypocrisy of the, the progressive left who has said, my gosh, we're supposed to believe all women. So, I mean, if we're supposed to believe all women, then I guess that's it for Joe Biden. Sorry. Used to sexual assault by a respected woman. Uh, and uh, therefore, no matter how nonsensical it is, uh, goodbye. Bye-bye. You, you got to be gone. Uh, that has not happened. And then what I found particularly hilarious and telling was Joe Biden's uh, response. At first, they tried not to respond at all. Uh, but then yesterday, they responded by uh, putting out a statement saying that the allegations are false, but... Get this. But Joe Biden respects the fact that all women should be heard. What? Second. Simultaneously saying this is false and that this person is trying to ruin your life, uh, destroy your campaign, and oh, by the way, help get Donald Trump uh, reelected. This is your, your view. This has to be your view if you're innocent. But you're also respectful of, of the fact that she gets the right to tell her story? I'm sorry. You cannot have it both ways just ask donald trump correct you, you cannot have it both ways and it's almost hilarious to watch a guy who's almost certainly innocent this 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 does not ring true to me at all uh so if we presume that uh that he's innocent which i think he is here's an innocent guy now forced to uh defend himself with at least one hand tied behind his back while also trying to be super woke and, and, and this is where wokeness ends up uh, coming back to haunt you. I mean, when, you know, these people have never thought about the idea that if we're going to lower the standards for proof and, and, the, and the standards for making an allegation, uh, guess what? It might come back to bite you at some point. They don't give a damn when it, when it bites somebody else or if it bites someone that they don't like. Uh, but they, they certainly seem to care about it. when it, uh, And so this is a completely uh, inconsistent reaction, but it's one that he's forced to do because of the nature of the political left. 
because the political left is incredibly hypocritical when it comes to these types of allegations. And I don't believe uh, the Tara Reid allegation, uh, but I do find it fascinating the way that Joe Biden is being forced to respond to it. Now, there's no indication that the allegation is having any real impact on Biden, partially because it's not been widely reported. Uh, now, there is an amazing disconnect going on. Uh, between Donald Trump's approval ratings, which are going up uh, and are higher than they have ever been. They are the highest they've ever been, and they're still high with regard to specifically the coronavirus. Now, I do believe that gravity is going to take its toll, especially now that the United States officially has the most cases of coronavirus, and now that the death toll is getting to numbers that uh, anybody are going to, is going to take seriously. I mean, we're about to exceed 9-11 numbers, not that it's a good analogy, but just from a perception standpoint, that we're, we have the most cases in the world, and our numbers of deaths are about to go past 9-11. So I do think that that's going to start to take a toll. Uh, now, on the other side, he's about to send everybody checks, essentially, in his name. And I do think that's being underestimated from a political standpoint. I mean, that is a powerful, powerful thing. You give somebody $1,200, <laughs> you're in a, in a tough spot. You're, they're going to think well of you. They're going to approve of what you're doing. Uh, and so I, it's very, very difficult to be able to discern the political implications of all this because this is unprecedented. Never in the history of the United States has a president been able to, to say to each voter, uh, effectively, here's $1,200. And oh, by the way, here's $500 for every one of your kids. Uh, that, that's going to leave a mark. How much of one, we don't know. Now, what's the disconnect here is that while his approval ratings are up, uh, according to a Fox News poll, which now, of course, Trump hates Fox News uh, uh, because they, they don't uh, you know, kiss up to him enough, and the Fox News polling has nothing to do with Fox News. That's the number one thing people need to understand about polling. They are completely separate from the news organization. They're, Fox News is just the one paying the bill for the poll. But regardless... A Fox News poll that came out yesterday was devastating for Trump against Biden. Biden crushed him at every possible matrix. Uh, the, the overall number was 9% uh, favorable towards Biden. In other words, I think it was 49-40 among all voters. It was 9% among those who are following this closely. Uh, Biden crushed him among swing state voters, and he really crushed Trump. And I didn't know how to interpret this, and I didn't go too deeply into it because I didn't have time. It was my birthday yesterday, so I wasn't going to spend all my day in, you know, deeply evaluating this poll. But, um, but it was very odd that in counties that were close, within 10 points in 2016, you, know, you could argue are swing counties, Biden blew the doors off of Trump in this particular poll. And uh, if this poll is legitimate, uh, that's really bad news for Trump. Because here he is, his approval ratings are as high as they've ever been, yet that's not translating to people's preference for the November election. And you, could, you can only really argue at this point, rationally, not that rationality always wins, but you can really only argue that uh, his approval ratings are only going to go down as the numbers with regard to coronavirus go up. That's, that would be logical. We don't know exactly where those coronavirus numbers are heading, but they're definitely not going to be dissipating in the next uh, you know, days or, or even weeks. It's going to be at least a month or two before we start to see really dramatic dissipation in those numbers, and that's pretty much the best-case scenario. So 
if you if you presume that the longer this goes on, the the lower Trump's approval is going to be on this because there's going to be more and more damage. It's it's hard to come up with a scenario where where Trump beats Biden. But I'm not willing to declare this thing remotely over yet. Uh, And it's not just because of Trump's survival instincts. I I still believe this wartime president giving each American cash payments is going to have a a pretty significant impact, especially on swing voters, especially on those kind of, you know, working class Democrats and and independents that Biden uh, should be doing really well with. Those are people that might decide, you know what, uh, you know, maybe Joe isn't up to this uh, and Trump's certainly acting like a Democrat and a, and a liberal and he's giving me money. So wh- why would we change? Uh, I, I think that there's still something to be said for that scenario. Now, there's another scenario here. I will fully admit, and there are people close to me trying to convince me that Trump is totally done and he's going to get crushed. That is a very legitimate scenario. But I'm talking about what are his chances of winning. That's how we end each episode of the Individual One podcast. And I'm still not convinced that he he is in a situation where he cannot possibly win this. So I'm going to keep the number at 30% chance of re-election for Donald Trump as we end episode number 98 of the Individual One podcast. So please uh, remember, as always, to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual Number One Pod. Until next time, which we hope... Uh, assuming that our uh, broadcast partners continue to allow us to to do these podcasts, we hope will be Wednesday, uh, mid-morning, early afternoon, West Coast, United States time. Until then, stay safe. My name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.